Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, September 27th, 2021. I am John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior Writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And back with us after a two-day break, Associate Editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Okay, so if you're following the gigantic uh, whoop-de-doo in Washington this week, um, the uh, it's like it's like a time when um, you are uh, moving and your kid is graduating from high school and your parents are having a 50th anniversary party and. Uh, there's a hurricane coming all at once. So we have the hard infrastructure bill. We have the reconciliation bill. We have the debt ceiling and we have the government funding and government shutdown. All uh, hitting their crisis moments this week in this four-day period. Today, Monday, September 27th, was supposed to be the day according to the agreement that was struck in August, for the House to vote on the hard infrastructure bill, which, as people may remember, uh, is the bill that funds actual transportation things and construction projects and passed through the Senate on a filibuster-proof majority, but is threatened in the House by progressives who do not want to vote for it because they want to use the bill as leverage to force the moderates in their caucus who do want to vote for it, but don't want to vote for the $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill to vote for the $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill. So Nancy Pelosi, the House Speaker, is finding herself in a position where she needs to figure out a way to get that bill to the floor and voted on without it being destroyed by members of her own party. And as she said yesterday, she won't bring a bill to the floor of the House if she doesn't have the votes to pass it. And she postponed this vote that she promised for this afternoon until Thursday, presumably because she did a whip count and they don't have the votes to pass it. The one piece of legislation in America over the last, you know, four years that actually has bipartisan support and uh, leftist Democrats are right now in a position to kill it. So they don't have the votes today, clearly. Why do we think they'll have the votes on Thursday? What's going to change? I mean, she just caved to the progressives. She's undermining moderates significantly. This was their demand and their demand has been sacrificed. So where do these votes come from? What is she, what does she put on the table to sweeten the package for progressives now? Uh, because their entire, their, their demands are entirely contingent on the Senate doing things. Well, here's one way of looking at it. And, 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 and Christine, as our resident liberal whisperer, maybe you can help us here. So I'm a friend of mine, uh, who knows who has forgotten more about you know sort of like the ins and outs of Democratic caucus politics than 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 I will ever know, and his point is that we are misunderstanding the depth of Democratic support for 
the social infrastructure bill. As he said, 90% of the Democrats in the House would happily vote for that bill, and 90% of the Democrats in the Senate would happily vote for that bill, and 90% of those 90% would have voted for $6 trillion. So in fact, among Democrats, elected Democrats in the House and in the Senate, the soft infrastructure, new great society package is vastly more popular than the smaller hard infrastructure bill. And so what we don't understand is that's actually the bill that Democrats want. That's what they want. We're saying, what are you, crazy? You could get this success. Biden can tout a success. He'll do great with independence and he'll throw Republicans on their heels. And they want three and a half to six trillion dollars in new social spending. But happily, that's not how our system works, because happily, we still occasionally elect Democrats in red states and Republicans in blue ones. And that's what's stopping it, which is exactly how our system is supposed to work, because however much uh, the Democrats are very eager to embrace this new kind of uh, social spending, which I I still kind of am baffled by the fact that that. because if I am a liberal whisperer, I've talked to a lot of my friends about this, and they're like, this is good. This is what we've been heading towards. This is what this country needs. They never use the word that the Democrats in, in Congress, including Nancy Pelosi, use all the time, which is transformative. They're actually trying to downplay how much this costs. But the average American is concerned about the cost, and there haven't been enough responses, particularly by the Biden administration, which has been supporting this, this push for spending, about how this is all going to get paid for. And I think that's probably where the, the, the a lot of people are going, huh? Even if the Democrats love it. Well, there's been the one big response, which from the president It'll cost himself, zero. It, it costs nothing. <laughs> it costs nothing. It's all because, free. It's free because money. You, because it, it's going to come out of taxes, which, as we all know, is nothing. Uh, Catherine Rempel, uh, economics columnist for the Washington Post, uh, became the subject of a Twitter controversy over the weekend because she went on some show, I think on CNN, and said, everybody's talking about the cost of this bill. And the truth is that's ridiculous because the bill isn't going to cost anything once it's because it's going to be paid for, right? And uh, Republicans, conservatives, our friends, stuff, like all went berserk and said, what is this? Like, this is crazy. I mean, so so tax cuts, which return money to taxpayers, cost, but spending that takes money from taxpayers and spends it at the federal government level is cost-free. This is now the pretzel logic that has come to dominate, uh, you know, respectable liberal economic thinking, which is, in the end, you're going to do this, it's going to have all these wonderful positive consequences. There'll be better healthcare outcomes. There'll be better educational outcomes because of early childhood spending. There'll be better climate change outcomes, so there'll be fewer storms that will that will engender... Uh, as much public emergency spending as you have to use. And over time, this is actually going, this is an investment that is going to pay off in economic growth 
and total wonderment. The bill, the small version of the bill, represents, I believe, 12 to 13% would add 12 to 13% to all GDP in the United States. In other words, the GDP of the United States is like $22 trillion, right? This bill is $3.5 trillion. Oh, granted, spread over time. Wait, the small bill or the large bill you're talking about? No, I'm now talking about the smaller version, not the $6 trillion version, but the $3.5 trillion version. $6 trillion version, what is $6 trillion out of $22 trillion? That's like almost 30, that's like 30%. I don't know. Anyway, whatever it is. Um, But it's not going to cost anything because it's all going to have these wonderful consequences. And if there is one thing we know about gigantic, large-scale federal programs, it is that they have all kinds of consequences and a lot of them are bad. And some of them can be good and it's ridiculous to say they're not. Medicare uh, Part D has been a success. Uh, I think everybody sort of acknowledges that this new entitlement, even though it's, you know, it has had some financially deleterious consequences, has been a success and a lot of people said it was going to be a catastrophe so you can't say that all government spending is bad, but what you can say is if you're going to spend three and a half to six trillion dollars in one go, there are going to be all kinds of weird effects that it's going to have, just like we saw this year. Not that those those effects were all that weird. You subsidize unemployment and you get more unemployment. That's what happened. That's why we still have a labor shortage, or why the labor shortage is probably now about to end because. The federal three hundred dollar a week subvention is now over, and people can must therefore go back to work and fill those nine million empty jobs. Yeah, well, as somebody who's uh, just recently moved and is looking for service providers, I can tell you that the labor shortage is nowhere near over, and it's getting it's pretty terrible. But right back to your friend's point, um, I'm thinking about this. If his logic holds, and it's true that what Democrats really love is this metaphysical infrastructure bill, 3.5 trillion, and what they don't love is the hard infrastructure bill, then Republicans are legislative geniuses without parallel, because then they've managed to kill this proposal in June by forcing Democrats to acknowledge the distinction between what they want to say is infrastructure, everything under the sun, and what you think of when you think of the word infrastructure. That messaging war ended in Republicans' favor in over the, in early summer, late spring, early summer, and it's essentially set us on a, a trajectory that led us here, which is may get us nothing, nothing at but all. Are, are, are they? So I'm, I'm, I'm hesitant to give Republicans that much credit, honestly. But that's that's what you know. This that's what his logic is essentially. Well, yeah, I, I think I don't, I don't, I think it's it's to the the sort of negative credit of, of the Biden administration who came up with this, you know, wacky idea to call social spending infrastructure. It was a bad, that was the bad message that was bound to fail. It didn't, it doesn't take a genius to, to destroy that message. Right. That's kind of the point that I'm trying to make. Yeah, is right. Okay. So the global, so uh, who was it who said, is it Herodotus? I can't remember which Greek said whom the gods, was it, uh, Aeschylus, whom the gods destroy, they first make mad, right? That, that is the, so we talked about this the other day. Game out the last nine or 10 months. Biden wins the election. 
uh, with exactly the same number of electoral votes as Trump, four and a half million vote margin. Entire margin comes from New York and California, which is, you know, nationally, which is fine. He wins by 43,000 votes in three states. Trump won by 88,000 votes in three states. Whatever. It doesn't really matter. Same electoral margin. No coattails, right? Uh, Democratic majority shrinks in the House. Uh, they don't take the Senate uh, as of in, in November, right? They, they, they're, they're down. They're down in the Senate. Um, Trump then goes bananas and depresses the vote in Georgia and Democrats win two seats in Georgia and suddenly they have 50 seats or they have 48 seats plus two independents caucusing with them. They have 50 seats plus the, plus the vice president game this out. And Trump doesn't do that. And they don't have those seats and they really don't have them because even though they have 50 nominal democratic seats, it turns out they have 48 because there are two democratic senators, Manchin and Cinema, who are not with the program. So though they are nominally with the, you know, Cinema hasn't voted against Biden once in, in, in the last nine months. So she has a hundred percent voting record, democratic voting record. But on this, she has said, I'm not doing it. And Manchin has said, I'm not doing it. So whatever happens, happens. And the Democrats in a combination of utopian frenzy and terrified panic about everything decide to shoot for the moon, right? They're going to shoot for the moon. Uh, and the panic is Republicans are on the march to limit voting rights and to do, you know, they're, they're controlling elections in states and they're gerrymandered. They're doing whatever it is they're going to do. Uh, though, of course, all of that is happening in deep red states. So it's unclear. It's unclear, like, why that's so terrible for them. It doesn't really change. It's not like it's happening in Massachusetts that Republican, you know, Trumpy Republicans are taking over the electoral, you know, the elections process. Nonetheless, they're doing all this. We have this period of time until the midterm elections, and then everything is going away. So we have to do this and do as much as we can, as fast as we can to stave off, you know, a disaster, including apocalyptic environmental disaster in the form of however much spending in this giant bill is for climate change. And everybody's with us. People love this bill. Like, look at the polling. Ask people, do you want a lot of free stuff? They say yes. You know? Okay. So um, Biden... You know, people, somebody once said to me, somebody who worked for Trump said to me that he only thinks ahead the next five minutes. That's why he lies lies so much. Like, he's in any given situation, he'll say the thing he needs to say to get him through the next five minutes, including in depositions and things like that. I don't see how Biden is much different. This whole thing that you pointed out about how they called it the infrastructure bill was a solution to a particular problem at a given moment in time. It sounded good at the time. The consequences of it or the logical difficulties with it were not enough to have people go, maybe we shouldn't do that because it is establishing a parallel baseline that, that will screw us up. Like, let's not do that. Let's call it something else. Build back better, which is what they started to call it. And then nobody liked it. So then they polled and it said people like infrastructure. So they called it infrastructure. And now now they've they've screwed it all up. Every turn of the road here, every twist in the Biden road involves decisions that are being made without much forethought about where they're going to lead six weeks later 
including, of course, the biggest and most horrible thing that's happened, which is the Afghanistan pullout, where apparently nobody was allowed to game out what the consequences would be. But we're having this absolutely right now. But this, but this is now. Now there, there's some restlessness among among the left about that, though, right? So last week, remember, there was this much, much uh, uh, fanfare made about how Biden's going to just sit down with these different groups. He had them all come to the White House. He's going to talk it out. He's going to solve everything because that's what he does. That's what he ran on, et cetera, et cetera. Well, nothing came of it. Still, a, t- still a mess. And this morning, you have a lot of moderate Democrats leaking to Politico and other news outlets saying Biden needs to do something. He needs to get on the phone. He needs to take a stand. He needs to actually encourage people to act in a particular way. This whole listening tour, not the the, the whole listening mode is not working, but it's not clear, as you say, John, it's not clear that they can pivot when things go badly. So he wanted to have the perception of competence and management and bipartisanship, but he doesn't actually want to make the hard decisions about forcing one side or the other to cave. Or maybe he can't force. Noah, let me right. put it this way. What I've just described to you is Biden had no coattails. He didn't win them the Senate. He lost 15 seats in the House were lost, right? He got himself elected. They got Trump out. That That is the unifying 2020 theme was we got to get Trump out of here. And the Democrats succeeded in that aim and they succeeded in almost nothing else. And maybe Biden just has no sway. I mean, you know, they should want a Democratic president to succeed. Uh, and uh, the analog to Trump, therefore, is interesting because Trump, who also had very little sway in the early going among uh, Republicans, um, then scared the S out of them. I mean, he did it through uh, intimidation. Like, he went and intimidated the Republicans. He went after Corker. He went after Flake. He, you know, he endorsed primary opponents. He scared the politicians in the party who thought, eh, he's a, you know, what the, whatever, we just do whatever we're going to do because he's a nut and he isn't, he's not interested in governing and all of that. So Biden's not scaring them. He's got no coattails. He doesn't seem to have the public with him, even though they, you know, they, they, until a couple of weeks ago, they seemed to like him more than they disliked him. Um, who's he going to push around? What? He has to go to them and say, this is it. Like, my presidency is over. Is that what you want? It's September. You know, it's going to be the beginning of October of 2021. You are going to end my presidency. Right. You're going to lose <laughs> next November. I am going to be a figurehead. The Republicans are going to run everything, and they're going to win in 2024. Is that what you want? Is that something Biden can say? Because I don't think he thinks it because he's an idiot. And it's the truth, but he's a moron because you say to him, you're going to be FDR. He's like, I'm going to be FDR, you know? Yeah. He says, let's pull out of Afghanistan. Someone says, maybe we shouldn't. He's like, you shut up. Let's get out of background. Well, that's at least, at least that was a a clear, you know, objective uh, articulated clearly. I want out and I don't care how we get there. Um, Progressives, reporters, you know, uh, who are clearly favorable towards uh, left-wing objectives. Their latest gripe now is that uh, people like Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema, Kirsten Cinema, I forget. Um, they're very unclear about what their demands Kristen are. Kristen Gillibrand, Kirsten Cinema, I believe. Is that am I correct? Go I ahead. Have no Sorry. idea. Okay. <laughs> it's been a long weekend. Yeah. Um, so they're very unclear about what their demands are. They don't say what the price tag they would support. No, it's Kirsten Gillibrand and Kirsten Cinema. Go ahead. Okay, Sorry, two Kirstens. 
Um, I think. Glad we cleared that. I have to check that too. So go ahead. But they say, you know, they, no, they, yeah, they, Kirsten, yes, okay. No, sorry, <laughs> sorry. Go ahead. Okay, Senator Kelly. We're back in the Kamala territory. I'm just pointing that out. <laughs> yeah, that's, we were stuck in that morass. Yes, we were for months. Let's, let's Kirsten, well, I know when in doubt, it's Burks, always Burks Briggs. <laughs> Go ahead. Sorry. No. So anyway, yes, they're very unclear about what they want. They don't tell you what they want, and so they're kind of stringing us along. And, and, you know, the, the least charitable interpretation of that is that they're stringing you along in order to kill the whole process. That's what their latest frustration is with these two senators in particular. But Joe Biden doesn't articulate what he wants either. Apparently in this meeting, he didn't make any demands of anybody. He didn't establish, you know, he likes to establish timelines. He didn't establish timelines. He said, you know, the moderates, you moderates need to figure out some sort of an offer to progressives and just go, go get to work. Go do it. Um, which is, again, terrible managerial style. Donald Trump wasn't very good either because uh, he would tell you exactly what he wanted and then change his mind two minutes later and tell you exactly what he wanted now, which conflicts with what he wanted two minutes ago. But at least he articulated objectives. And, and generally, he would have accepted whatever, whatever the Republican-led Congress would hand him, uh, by and large. Uh, and Joe Biden probably is in the same position he would he would he would sign what what's put in front of him, but he's the one who put all these demands on Congress. He's the one who said the, the progressive strategy. Now he's the one who said I won't accept the, the the hard infrastructure bill unless it's accompanied by the you know the everything else package. So he's mimicking Donald Trump's style in a way that I think is reflective of why his presidency is not going so well. Because as, while the two of them have very distinct tonal approaches to politics their managerial style is very similar insofar as he's sort of a, he just has his no hand on the tiller kind, kind no hand on the till rather kind of thing when he's just backing off and letting congress take the lead and congress doesn't function that way it hasn't um, functioned that way in the time. i think it's an excellent point and it's not just the managerial style it it dictates the goals too right he just wants big things big numbers um big pushes let's just okay Let's we can, booster shots now. Push them out. Let's go. Let's get out of Afghanistan now. I don't care how wild. Let's, let's do. You know, there's nothing is targeted. Nothing is uh, nuanced. It's 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 not just in the strategy. It's it's also in the ambitions themselves. That's really important because I think that's probably why they only talk about these bills in in their in terms of their cost. The price tag. Right. The only reason the only, we, we talk about the reconciliation, reconciliation bill as the three point five trillion dollar bill. That's how it's known. We know it because of its price tag. That's how that's shorthand for this bill. And that's what they want. They want to spend big you know, numbers and do really big things. And that's how they quantify it literally by by the price tag. But that's also why it's going to fail. If it fails, it will fail because of its mammoth, gigantic price tag and the fact that nobody knows what it's supposed to do. Right. Yeah, but Chris. But Christine, my friend says, when Biden is siding with the progressives, he is in fact siding with the vast majority of the elected officials in his party. Uh, if he sides with Mansion and Cinema, he is actually siding with a tiny majority minority in his party in Washington that but does Manchin not reflect and- the party's. But okay. it does reflect more Americans, I think. I think that's the distinction. And he has that line to to uh, walk, which folks in Congress do not. He has to answer to everyone in a re-election in a few years. And I don't think that most Americans, to Noah's point, 
they don't even know what all this money's getting spent on. And however much you promise people free stuff, and some of it I think is actually supported by the public. People do want paid leave. People want a lot of these things. But Americans also want to know how that's going to get paid for. And people don't want a tax increase right now. So I, I'm not convinced that he's not trying to walk that line for himself and his own political interests. And that's a separate issue from what Congress, uh, congressional Democrats want for themselves. Uh, if you want to know about unintended consequences of large-scale American government economic policy, you should turn to our friends at the Bonson Group and uh, David Bonson's two newsletters, the dctoday.com and dividendcafe.com. This is the sort of overarching subject of his writings uh, that uh, emerge from the Bonson Group, a $3 billion financial management and consulting and services firm uh, by Coastal that David runs with uh, 28 associates, I believe. And, uh, and, and he uh, applies very serious macro and microeconomic analysis to daily numbers and weekly events uh, to try to figure out what you, uh, an individual investor, or what the people that he advises on how to invest uh, need to do to... Um, uh, protect themselves from uh, from large-scale government action that may have deleterious consequences or to figure out how to profit from some of these changes if there is profit to be had. So go to DividendCafe.com and subscribe to Bonson's two newsletters, Dividend Cafe and the DC Today, that one being daily, obviously, Dividend Cafe being weekly, and be enlightened and uh, better educated about all of these topics that we are talking about with from our friends at the Bonson Group, the antidote to the intellectual spaghetti of the financial services and management industry. Um, a little more about Congress and some of the other like ancillary weirdnesses that have been going on. Um, I was struck by, and we talked about this on Friday, Everybody's talking about the weird behavior of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez changing her vote uh, against uh, Iron Dome, uh, having having helped spike the funding for the Iron Dome or the inclusion of the iron funding to re replenish Iron Dome's anti-missile system uh, in the continuing budget resolution on Tuesday and then uh, having a standalone vote on Thursday that she then instead of voting no on, voted present on, and then dissolved into tears. Go ahead, Christine. Uh, I was going to say, we, I love our listeners because uh, that discussion on Friday prompted several insightful emails, uh, several of which pointed out that the reason she might have voted present and then begun sobbing is that she's, she's strategically positioning herself to challenge Chuck Schumer in the Senate. And she cannot, if she has to appeal to a wide range of New York voters outside of her particular district, she's going, she cannot be seen on the record to have opposed that funding, but it just made her cry. How frustrating for her. So I liked that I mean, idea. If that's okay. The case, okay. She shouldn't run for Senate because it's just too emotionally taxing. Apparently. I know, really. It's so hard on her. Poor, right. poor dear. But, but <laughs> I mean, the problem with this theory, which is, you know, yes, yeah, she wants to maintain a future. So she voted president and said no. But then she issued a statement saying she was against the funding. And so I don't know how this helps her. Like, if she did this in order to preserve her 
viability within the New York State Democratic Party's or electoral system. Uh, she did a piss poor job of it. She has but, done absolutely nothing to negate the possibility of that of her behavior this week being used against her uh, in but, in a future election. Okay, but but let me just point out that her long uh, and extremely poorly written statement. If she wrote it herself, that's sad. If someone else wrote it for her, that person should be fired. But that statement went out on her official government Twitter account, not on her personal account, not on her Instagram. Mm-hmm. She is. These are different constituencies she's serving. There's her fan service, which is most of her social media, her personal social media, which gives her the clout in the media to put pressure on members of. Congress who have far more experience and, and knowledge than she does. So she's she's still trying to walk that line. I agree, John. I don't think she's going to manage to do that for much longer because the, the, it's just such a diametrically opposed approach, but she's still trying to do that. Okay, but I, 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 was, I, I, I was hit with a memory or, a, or, or an analogy to her behavior, a literary analogy to her behavior I wanted to share with everybody. Um, maybe the greatest of all novels about politics, about the functioning of politics, Certainly the greatest series of novels about politics are by Anthony Trollope, the Palliser novels, six novels about uh, government, basically, I mean, about a family and about people and all kinds of stuff, but, but, uh, but about government. And the third novel in the Palliser series is called Phineas Finn. And uh, Phineas Finn is the story of a, of a 25-year-old who gets elected uh, to Parliament, a poor guy, uh, uh, a man of no means uh, from Ireland, um, comes to London. Uh, you know, shocking turn of events ends up sort of like Mr. Smith goes to Washington, ends up in London, and it's the story of his journey in the thickets of party politics and government in nineteenth century. Uh, in the 19th century British Parliament, uh, and he becomes a rising star. And the crux of the novel involves uh, a demand that he vote for a bill as a member of the government uh, that uh, is hostile to his own constituency and his deepest beliefs involving Irish tenant farming. That just doesn't matter what the, what the bill is about. Uh, but uh, his incredible conflict in the book is his future as an ambitious politician requires that he vote for the government's position, even though it is deleter- even though it it is something that he deeply disagrees with, and uh, and is something that uh, I mean that's it. So. Uh, this is exactly what has happened here. Uh, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez is, I think, 31 years old. She was elected when she was 29, I think, 28 or 29. The parallels are, you know, from an obscure, not really obscure, but, you know, out of nowhere, rises out of nowhere, comes, sort of becomes a big star and all of that. And here she, and supposedly represents uh, all that's good and young and, um, idealistic in politics and a hope to really improve people's lives using politics as a lever to do that. And uh, she finds herself faced with this kind of choice where she, it is put before her that if she continues to espouse her deeply held views, wrong though they may be, they might be deleterious to her future. And in Phineas Finn, 
who is a very admirable character, uh, and the book is all about the temptations of ambition. That's why it is such a great novel and why he really is deeply, deeply seduced by power and money and wealth and influence and the hunger to have all of them is faced with this existential crisis. And in the end, he does what's right. He votes the way he must vote, the way his conscience dictates. He resigns from the government and he returns to Ireland. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, faced with that kind of choice, behaved in a craven, disreputable, and entirely careerist fashion. And I really hope, though I doubt, that her followers and the people who think so highly of her will take a hard look at this and wonder what else she would be willing to betray on her way to whatever her ambitions might be. That's I'll, my monologue. I'll, I'll be honest with you. I yeah. think her. I think her followers are more impressed by the tears than than um, discouraged by the um, by the present vote. Well, that would be the difference between nineteenth century yes, London and twenty exactly first right. century Washington. Phineas didn't wouldn't have it? an Instagram account, John. That's yep. correct. <laughs> Though he but, would have, but the emotional that that I think that's a very astute point because they are moved by her displays of emotion. They love the personal insight she's supposedly giving when she performs, you know, cooking soup while talking about, you know, marking up a bill. I mean, they love that crap. I'm sorry, I find it to be extremely cynically manipulative crap. But people love it, and it's perfect for that medium. But it's oh, not the same thing as governing. <laughs> I've said it before. It's another example where she she's turning, you know, politics into a kind of wellness. Uh, project yeah but it's also it's a wellness project that itself is a is a stalking horse for radical politics its purpose is not wellness its purpose is to adapt and adopt the techniques of you know new agey wellness to um you know socialism basically right i mean it's it's not genuine it is it is literally propagandistic but that's I mean, this was Barack Obama's project, right? To just make himself into a lifestyle brand. And that's probably a lot of the reason why his presidency isn't remembered as anything particularly transformative, uh, in part because he didn't get a lot done, but he did make himself into a brand. Um, And that's what politics has become (laughs) across the board, across the spectrum. It has become a series of competing lifestyle brands that, as you say, are stocking horses for it. There are agenda items in there. But can anybody say that they've, it's been an effective vehicle for, for those agenda items? It hasn't worked for Obama. It didn't work for Donald Trump. And Joe Biden is handing the reins over now to progressives. So just about every you know piece that you read in Politico and half a dozen other people are talking and just saying, oh, the progressives, you know, he's Joe Biden knows that progressives are keeping him on track. You know, they're keeping him on his agenda in line and they're pursuing it in ways that he he maybe might lose sight of in the day-to-day minutia of, of governing. Um, and Joe Biden's handing the reins over to progressives. Uh, and in, in, as a result, he's allowing this lifestyle brand to consume his presidency. And I, based on the conversation we've had over the last half hour, it doesn't sound like it's very effective. So as much as it's you know kind of annoying to us, uh, why wouldn't we welcome it, especially if it's not you know getting anything done? It's tarnishing politics it's making politics really obnoxious uh 
but it's also not effective, an effective governing strategy. Right. Well, uh, let me talk to you guys about Bambi, our, our second sponsor today, because when running a business, HR issues can kill you. Wrongful termination suits, minimum wage requirements, labor regulations, those HR manager salaries aren't cheap, an average of $70,000 a year. Bambi, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E, was created specifically for small business to provide a dedicated HR manager, craft HR policy, and maintain your compliance all for just $99 a month with Bambi. You can change HR from your biggest liability to your biggest strength. Your dedicated HR manager is available by phone, email, or real-time chat. From onboarding to terminations, they customize your policies to fit your business and help you manage your employees day-to-day, all for just $99 a month, month-to-month, no hidden fees, cancel anytime. You didn't start your business because you wanted to spend time on HR compliance. Let Bambi help. Get your free HR audit today. Go to Bambi.com slash commentary right now to schedule your free HR audit. That's Bambi.com slash commentary, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E dot com slash commentary. Um, COVID numbers are really weird. Uh, uh, There's good news and horrible news. The horrible news is the death toll continues to rise in the United States. The good news is that the case numbers continue to shrink. And David Leonhardt of the New York Times, who is... We've been citing for months somebody whom I really, whose economics writings I really have disliked, but whose writings on COVID have been uncommonly sensible, has an interesting piece this morning that Abe actually managed to completely discredit just by looking at another chart in the New York Times. This piece is about how over time uh, COVID is now following absolute hardline political patterns. The political divide over vaccinations is so large that almost every reliably blue state now has a higher vaccination rate than almost every reliably red state. And COVID deaths and COVID cases are worse in Trump counties than in Biden counties everywhere and everywhere you can look and all of that. Except, uh, are they? Abe, tell us what well, you, uh, we were talking about this just before, and then yeah. Abe goes to the New York Times and clicks on the uh, state level case and death rate stuff. And um, uh, what did you find? I mean, it wasn't <clears throat> it wasn't my intention to, to debunk his piece, but I, I sensed that that there was some going to be some confusion because in all the red states he's talking about. Um, well, yeah, they they experienced huge surges, and they are they are um, they are more they are less apt to uh, have uh, uh, significant percentages of vaccinated people. Um, their surges, their delta surges, are way down. Um, I don't have it in front of me right now. I'm sorry, but but you know, um, down by down in some states, and by, by an order of you know. 35, 40% over, 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 I guess the two, two week period cases are down and cases in the Northeast, uh, 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 are rising and in, in blue States are rising. Um, so I think it, to some extent, his piece is another example of what's been happening this whole time, which is a little bit of sort of like triumphalism based on a snapshot at any given moment at at any given moment when cases are high or have been high or when when COVID has wreaked havoc on uh, red states a lot of people from blue states say 
look what's happening. They've messed it all up. We were smart. They were dumb. This was this this happened before the vaccines were even available. Um, and then the virus moves geographically, seasonally. It moves, and that's happening again. Now, of course, it is much better to be vaccinated than not when when, when this happens. Um, but I, I think the virus will always kind of uh, make you look a little petty when you start taking that kind of approach because inevitably when you're pointing your fingers at states where numbers are high, it, it comes around for you too. Um, I just want to read uh, in the same paper on this, you know, on the same website, uh, little notes in the New York Times next to their coronavirus in the U.S. latest map and case count, right? Quote, new infections and hospitalizations are declining nationally, though some northern states continue to see growing outbreaks. Those northern states are New York, Wisconsin, Minnesota. Uh, guess uh, who, uh, guess what states those are? Those are Biden states. Now, maybe county by county, those are disproportionately Trump voters who are, or the areas are Trump counties or something. Nonetheless, uh, you know, uh, that, that gets very granular and we can talk about that. Florida, which was regularly identifying more than 20,000 infections a day in August, is now averaging around 7,000 cases each day. Fewer than half as many COVID-19 patients are hospitalized in that state as there were a month ago. Anybody heard that? Have you heard that Florida, that the crisis is over in Florida, that, that the, that the uh, hospitalized patient number is down by half in a month? I don't think you've heard that. Well, it's an it's actually an ongoing joke on the right, right? That when whenever there's a there's a spike in a, in a democratic state, the joke is how, Ron DeSantis, how dare you? Why did you do that to us? I mean, it, yeah. because the, the focus right. on particularly on DeSantis in right. Florida has been so relentlessly negative. Having said all this, it is still the case that. 99% of the deaths are among the unvaccinated. The vaccines have been around since March. And uh, I do not see this as a public policy crisis. I see this as um, a, a, a series of tragic false choices that people have made that have led to terrible consequences. Um, and uh, again, why why we should all be uh, wearing masks when we're double vaccinated and protected uh in in our in our blue states here uh is remains a bizarre a mystery to me uh unless you think that uh at any moment the variant uh can mutate and turn into something so horrible and you're going to be on the leading edge of the leading edge recipient of that before anybody can even um, identify it. So, but that's sort uh, of the essential truth that whether, you know, regardless of his analysis, the truth that he's, that David Leonard has landed on here is that COVID hasn't been a national crisis for a very long time. It is a regional crisis. Now those regions can change. Those regions have changed. They will continue to change, but this is why we have federalism. There should be tailored approaches here for case for Idaho that don't make a lot of sense for New York. And there's no reason why we should be imposing the same mitigation measures on New Yorkers as we are in Nebraska 
that's the sort of thing that we have crafted this system in order to address. And to even say that out loud in certain circles is regarded as, uh, as denial, as denying the virus exists somehow for some bizarre reason. Though you're giving license to people who want to be reckless and who want to, you know, spread this disease and overrun hospital systems. I don't, I don't, the logic changes. Um, but they're, what they want is an, a national COVID uh, protocol that just doesn't make sense and hasn't for a very long time. Uh, but it's very okay. consistent with what we were talking about regarding Biden's approach, right? No nuance, no, nothing targeted. Uh, even before he got in office, he was talking about national mandates. Right. right. I mean, the horrible part about this is that um, you need a policy in Idaho and uh, and Idaho uh, remains bizarrely skeptical. You know, I mean, th- there is an emergency room cry. There is uh, an ICU crisis. Absolutely. In Idaho. And, in and there's the a States. very distinct political culture in yeah. Idaho. That right. is not shared by the people of Michigan. That is I don't correct. know why that's difficult to say. But it it is. You just said it. You just oh, said how it. many people are talking about this, John? How many people are saying, "Oh, you know, kids should not wear masks where the vaccination rate is seventy-five plus"? I, I don't. I mean, the problem is, as we keep saying, is that the mask means something else now. It is alternately uh, a, a a talisman and a and a social and political badge. It's a talisman against disease that it does not prevent you from getting, though it might prevent you from spreading. And it is a social and political and ideological badge that is unmistakable. Because <laughs> either you're wearing it because you are deeply committed to the idea of you know having a outward manifestation of your vote, or you have been kowtowed into it and are therefore displaying the power of that consensus view wherever you're, you're, you're living. Right. I mean, I don't know that there's any real distinction there exactly. And, uh, and that seems uh, now to be uh, uh, everlasting. um, Tragically. Um, uh, Let me talk to you about our final advertiser today. Aura, because the way you use the internet has changed dramatically over the last decade, but security tools have mostly stayed the same. Aura provides complete digital security to help you protect your online accounts, finances, devices, and more all in one easy to use app. Most credit card companies do a good job of protecting you against fraudulent purchases, but what if a scammer files for unemployment in your name or your social media accounts are hacked? Aura's protection goes well beyond your credit card between your photos. Finances, devices, and connections. Your world is more online than ever. You may have security systems in place for real life, but what about your online life? Aura can help you sound the alarm if your digital presence is at risk. It provides digital security protection to keep your online finances, personal information, and tech safe from online threats. All-in-one protection from identity theft, financial fraud, malware, scam sites, and so much more. You'll get alerted to fraud and threats fast, like if your online accounts or passwords were leaked online, or if someone tries to open a bank account in your name, or it's easy to set up. All plans come with a million bucks in identity theft insurance to help recover your stolen funds and experienced U.S.-based customer support that's got your back. It's a new type of security service that protects all your online information and devices with one simple subscription, with an easy online dashboard, an alert sent straight to your phone, Aura keeps you in control and guides you through solving any issues. And for a limited time, Aura is offering our listeners up to 40% off plans when you visit Aura.com slash commentary. Go to Aura.com slash commentary to get complete protection and savings of up to 40%. That's A-U-R-A dot com slash commentary. 
Okay, I uh, want to conclude on a cultural note, not that the, the Phineas Finn thing wasn't the whole cultural note. Uh, the Tony Awards were last night, Broadway, right? Broadway, uh, people, uh, you know, had, but it was off basically for almost, you know, 18 months. Broadway is now back, it's reopening, and they had a Tony Awards uh, for an abbreviated season uh, that had been postponed for a year. And none of that is interesting. I mean, there was a lot of political stuff, and, you know, it's a reckoning, it's it, there was a, there was a tap dance a uh, number about uh, uh, with a rap about whether uh, you want to do arrest and arrest people or have arrest, see arrest and arrest and stuff like that. But here's what's interesting: there were two big plays up for best play. One was called The Inheritance. One was called Slave Play. The Inheritance is a was a play staged in London, written by an American, a gay Latino American named Matthew Lopez. A seven-hour, two-part adapt gay adaptation of Howard's End by E.M. Forster, which is sort of funny because E.M. Forster was himself gay and the first probably openly, semi-openly gay writer pretty much in world history. But Howard's End is a book about heterosexuals. But so some, I didn't see it, but it's sort of adapted. And Slave Play, which is by a 30-year-old black gay writer named Jeremy O'Harris, uh, which is set in two different times, and there's a lot of sex stuff, and there, you know, sex devices and slaves and runaway slaves, and I didn't see this either. Just to just to make this clear, uh, Slave Play was up for twelve uh, Tonys. Uh, the Inheritance was up for ten. The Inheritance was staged in London, then brought to the United States, even though it's an American play. Uh, and uh, given the reckoning, the reckoning, Black Lives Matter, and the reckoning of our time, and you know. Broadway is now committed to having 50% representation of all minorities and everything it does, including backstage. And, and people are you know yelling at each other about whether they're mean or nice to non-binary people and blah, 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 blah. The vote comes out. And guess what? The Inheritance wins everything. The Inheritance wins best play. It wins best director. It wins best actor. It wins best supporting actress. And Slave Play, nominated for 12 Tonys, gets nothing blanked now let's go back to the the oscars in march all these things were up for oscars judas and the black messiah and uh i I mean i can't remember what all these and you know chadwick boseman loses to anthony hopkins and judas and the black messiah loses to nomadland what's going on here secret ballot is what's going on here and my friend Michael Riedel, who's written for commentary, is the most powerful and smartest uh, theater columnist uh, in America, has been for the last 20 years, says, uh, privately, secretly, people on Broadway are pissed off uh, that their liberal bona fides is being called into question and that the notion that they should vote for black stuff as opposed to gay stuff, like Broadway's gave three Tonys to August Wilson you know, Broadway has done, you know, Broadway has had colorblind casting for 25 years, blot this notion that, you know, and 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 in Hollywood, some of the same stuff. And basically, all these commies are going into the private voting booth and are voting against Black Lives Matter, PC, uh, you know, uh, cultural revolution, kowtowing of the sort that Abe wrote about in his PCS, This is a Revolution. Abe, what do you make of it? Well, uh, it's hard to be happy about it because the sad part is if that's if that's the response, then there's going to be works of great merit um, that involve 
African-American issues written by black writers, black directors, sort of, that, that won't get the credit that they should get uh, based on artistic merit, right? Because now if, now if this has just become a sort of um, political street fight that's, that's uh, hashed out by secret ballot, um, then, then, but this is always the danger um, when you when you turn, you know, questions of artistic merit into uh, the questions of the right politics. Right. You're I mean, every, I, even I, if yeah, you're not an identity politics uh, foot soldier, you are drafted into the army unwittingly simply because of the accident of birth that you're in. If you're an artist who happens to be black, who isn't you're then included with or without your own permission. Yeah, but I, but also I want to say that I, I have no problem believing um, Riedel's take because I, I know a bunch of theater people and I know they've gone through hell uh, since since uh, since the George Floyd uh, was killed. All sorts of manifestos went out in the theater community, all sorts of um, theaters and uh, people who have run small theaters for ages were canceled, um, mm-hmm. revamped, sort of taken over by the activists, everything. So so they, their world has been turned upside down. And you're talking about a world, as John says, that has always been, or in, in you woke. know, it's always been, always woke. been woke. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Like there woke is woke. Wasn't invented two years ago. Like there have been people who have been doing what they have been told to do ideologically forever. And guess what? It turns out that it's never enough and they're old and they're tired and they're losing their jobs and they're being accused of, 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 spiritually, racially, and ideologically criminal actions. And they're too cowardly to stand up and say, go screw yourselves. But they're not too cowardly to vote how they want to vote when they're in their own ballot box. Uh, It's the Bradley effect. It's the Bradley effect in show business. And it's interesting. I think it's more, I think it's more suggestive. I don't know what it's suggestive of, and it, it doesn't really matter. You're talking about 850 people who vote for the Tonys. So, it, it, you know, I'm not saying it's it's representative of anything, but it is very interesting. And it's also interesting enough for us to end on. Uh, thanks for listening. We'll be back tomorrow for Abe, Christine, and Noah. I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.